Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Uh, the aftershock or the after the shock gathering uh, that we're going to be having uh, again, as Tyler said, is an opportunity for those of us uh, who really are still processing through the trauma of the November 30th event. It's an opportunity to come, gather together, uh, to talk about it, to process it, and we are going to have uh, a expert from UAA that's going to be present. And just talk to us about uh, how to deal uh, with um, trauma as a result of a disaster. And give us some tips on that and just to process that a little bit. So, again, I'd encourage you to come. And uh, I know if there are any aftershocks between now and next Sunday, uh, that will be more of an encouragement for some of us uh, to be there, okay? So I just want to invite you uh, to that. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, we talked about our church, our mission, our vision. Uh, We talked about our response uh, to the earthquake in the community. And you might remember I noted that that just didn't happen by accident, that we had really been on a journey seeking the Lord, prayerfully discerning, Um, exactly how he wanted us as a church uh, to represent him in the world. And, of course, that's where our mission statement came from as a result of that process. It's called a Congregation Vitality Pathway. We talked about that. Our mission is to bring Christ's hope, his healing, and his wholeness uh, to those who call this their church home, to our friends and neighbors, people in our community, Uh, to our state and to our world. That's our mission. And we want to tangibly, in our actions, uh, visibly manifest uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom work that Jesus uh, is fast at work doing in the world all around us. So we want to go, we want to join him wherever he is at and be a part of his kingdom work. So we talked about that. And... uh, We talked about our desire to be a healthy missional church. Healthy meaning that we pursue Jesus. Missional means that we pursue Christ's priorities in the world. And uh, I shared with those of you uh, that may not have been here that about five years ago we took a survey called Pulse that really measured how we're doing as a church in being healthy and missional. Um, And I shared with you that we, uh, in that survey, revealed that we were a stable church, but we were moving in the healthy missional direction. Stable churches often lack the impetus or the motivation uh, to do things because they they feel pretty good about who they are and what they've already done. And... uh, 
it's good that people identify and feel good about their church, but when a church becomes stagnant and stable, uh, oftentimes that is the pathway um, to significant decline. So we talked about that. And uh, then I said that this spring we're going to be taking that pulse survey again. Now, we're not going through the whole vitality pathway again. What we are going to do is just measure how we've done since then. Are we more healthy and missional than we were five years ago? Okay? And this spring we'll be taking a survey. You'll take it. And uh, it'll help measure how we're doing. So I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, somebody said, we're not going through the vitality pathway again, are we? I said, no, 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 calm down. No, no, we're just going to take a survey and measure how we're doing. Uh, and based on, upon what we discover, then we're going to adjust our, our church ministry plan so that we can continue to grow into being healthy and missional. Okay? So I just want to clarify that. If you missed it last week, that's a synopsis of everything. Uh, but you might recall that I shared uh, the 10 markers of a healthy missional church and how we as a church adopted those and they became our core values. Do you remember that? They're up on the wall in the lobby. You can read them. Uh, but one of them is um, the basis of what I want to talk to you about today. And uh, it is, uh, Tobin, that we want to be a part of transforming communities through compassion, mercy, and justice. Uh, we are burdened for hurting people in our community and beyond. In response, we will seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly to God. Okay? That comes from Micah 6.8. And you might re remember the context. Micah is an Old Testament prophet. And he is prophesying uh, both to the northern and southern uh, kingdoms. And what's going on at this time, there are people in positions of power and privilege. There are people who uh, are religious leaders. People who uh, are materially well off. And they are profiteering. They are positioning themselves and uh, fixing the culture so that they continue to prosper. But they're doing so on the backs of those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. Those who have less of a voice in the culture of their time. And God is responding through the prophet. And one of the charges that he brings against the people is that, listen, you can't possibly love me unless you're loving each other. And those of you, especially who know better, that should know better, including those in positions of religious authority, are positioning themselves in such a way that they are gaining at the expense of other people. And that was offensive towards God. And that was one of several other reasons that the Lord said, listen, 
I'm going to chasten you. I'm going to discipline you. Unless your hearts change. And the most abhorrent thing to the Lord was this. That people who weren't loving their brothers and sisters who were profiteering and taking advantage of them, would go to church, if you will, to worship the Lord. And they would make sacrifices to the Lord. All the while their heart wasn't right with their fellow man and because your heart wasn't right with one another, it couldn't possibly be right with God. And God essentially says to them, this is what I require of you. This is, this is what the priority is. This is what is most important. Micah 6.8 The prophet says, the Lord has told us what is right and what He demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. And several places in the Old Testament and where the Old Testament is quoted and cited in the New Testament, the message is that God prefers obedience over sacrifice. In other words, quit with a religiosity. Piety without compassion is a lie. Get your heart right with one another so your heart can be right with me. That was the message. And that's what the prophet was speaking to the people. Proverbs 21.3 says this. The Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer Him sacrifices. Okay? So I want to offer the Lord a sacrifice of obedience. And that is made manifest in how I respond to others. How I treat them. How I represent Christ and His priorities in the world. Not that I position myself solely for my own gain, but what advantage I have, I want to use for the cause of Christ and His kingdom work in the world. Does that make sense? That's a core value for us at Community Covenant Church. Uh, That's an important thing. Um... As we, we think about that, and as I was preparing this message, it, it didn't escape me that this weekend we celebrate uh, the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King. Okay? Um, more than 50 years or 50 years after his death, he still is a polarizing figure. Okay? And that polarization comes when people associate him primarily as a civil rights leader uh, or as an anti-segregationist rather than, at least in the church, as recognizing him as a churchman. 
as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, as one who sought to look at injustice in the world and in our own nation through the lens of a biblical world view and to respond accordingly. Now, some of you remember those turbulent years of the late 50s and the 60s. I remember them. Okay? In fact, I remember where I was in April of 1968 when Dr. King uh, was assassinated by James Earl Ray at a Memphis motor hotel. And the person I was with at that time when the news came over the car radio, the AM radio that our cars used to have, uh, laughed and began to celebrate. Because there were those, especially in some segments of the white community, who sought to discredit Dr. King claiming that uh, he was a philanderer. Or they said politically he was aligned with the Communist Party. There were all kinds of charges and allegations that were made against him to discredit his work. And, And I say shamefully, I grew up with people around me who believed those things and celebrated his untimely death. Okay? So I understand how polarizing a figure he was. But the reason I bring him up today is because I think, in retrospect, through the lens of history, as imperfect as he may or may not have been, as all leaders are, he was a man for his time. He was an Esther. God raised him up for such a time as this. And uh, he led uh, the church in a movement to end racial segregation, uh, particularly in our southern states at that time. And we can learn a lot from him. He was an educated man. He was a man who had a lot to say, a man of influence, and his influence, I believe, continues today. And I believe his influence can help us as a church understand how to look at our world through a biblical worldview and prayerfully respond to opportunities to make a difference, okay? Now, some people may say, well, that's true, but, you know, things are much better now. Things are, and they are. They are much better now. Um, But we still have a ways to go. I can remember 20 years ago taking a church on a mission trip to Mendenhall, Mississippi to work with Mendenhall Ministries, which was an African-American ministry 
that had a school, a legal clinic, a medical clinic, and they served both whites and blacks in the community. It was begun by John Perkins and continued by Dolphus Weary. And I was introduced to Dolphus through a covenant pastor that was mentoring me at the time. And so I began to take teams there. And here's what I noticed. This was just 20 years ago. That the town of Mendenhall was divided by railroad tracks. North of the railroad tracks were paved streets, sidewalks, gutters with storm drains, beautiful parks and buildings. Okay? But south of the train tracks, where Mendenhall Bible Church and Mendenhall Ministries operated were dirt roads, drainage ditches, no sidewalks, one small asphalt basketball court that I came to find out was placed there to keep the young people south of the tracks from going north of the tracks to utilize the facilities there. That was a shock to me. I'd never seen anything like that. And I remember going into town to buy supplies for a work project that we were doing. And I remember getting the look from some people that caused me to be concerned about my safety and the safety of the team after dark. Not because we were south of the tracks, because I was scared to go north of the tracks. Okay? That was very real. And I thought about that, then I came home to Sacramento, California, where I lived at the time. And my wife and I had worked in prison and jail ministry, so we had purchased a home in an economically and socially depressed part of the city. And living there, we began to recognize that there was a disproportionate amount of civic services, public services, that went to the areas outside of our neighborhood. For example, rather than the street cleaner coming every week, it came a few times a year. There was an obvious absence of city services, public services. And when I called and asked somebody about it, this is what I was told. What are you doing living in that neighborhood? Now, this is a public official. We call your neighborhood the self-cleaning oven. You can't expect to get the help you want there. You know what my advice to you is? Get the hell out. And in the meantime, buy a gun, but don't tell anybody I told you. Because you're on your own. That's Sacramento. That's not Mendenhall, Mississippi. And just a few years ago, before I came here, as I was a pastor of a church in a progressive community in, in, in Sonoma County, California, as we began to minister to the whole community, and non-English speaking people began to attend our church because they felt loved. We began to have translation of the service in Spanish. 
We had as many as 30 Spanish-speaking people that would show up at the church on Sunday, and, and the service was translated. One day I, I got a knock on the door, and there was a man from the church, and he said, Pastor, I want you to know that I'm a very influential person in the church. In fact, I give a lot of money. And I said, well, first of all, I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't want to know. But when anybody starts with that, they lead with that, I know what's coming next. And he says, there's three things I want you to do if I'm going to continue to come to the church and if I'm going to tithe at this church. He says, the first thing is, you have to get rid of the moment of friendship when everybody shakes hands. I'm a busy man on Sunday mornings. If people want to shake hands and socialize, they can come early or stay late. But you should remove that from the service. Okay? He says the second thing you need to do is the service needs to be less than an hour. My weekends are important to me. Okay? And he says, and here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. I'll pay for it with my own money. I just want your permission. Now, what I'm going to say, you're going to say, no, no, that's not true. It's true. He said, I want to build a plexiglass box around the Mexicans. Because they disrupt me. They disturb my time in the service. Okay? That wasn't Mendenhall, Mississippi. It wasn't Birmingham, Alabama. That was Sonoma County, California, less than 10 years ago. So what is the role of the church? What is the voice of the church? What is God calling us to do in response to situations that we see in the world around us where there is a desperate need for for hope and for healing and for wholeness. How then shall we live and who will speak for God? That's a legitimate question, church. If we're going to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness into people's lives, we're going to get a little messy because we're going to be called to go to messy places and stand with those who are in a mess. And some are that don't even know it. I'm not just talking about the down and out. I'm talking about the up and out as well. Okay? But I thought it appropriate on this weekend, the day before we begin um, our remembrance of Dr. King, to listen to some of his words as he framed the church's response to the issue back then of racial segregation. And as I read some of his words, I want you to listen to the scriptures that he cites. I want you to listen to how he creates a biblical worldview out of which the church responds to an injustice in society. Okay? 
I want to read from you to you from the letter from the Birmingham jail. Let me give you the context. In 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama, April 12th, 1963, Dr. King was arrested. He and a, and a group of protesters went to Birmingham in nonviolent protest of laws that were being broken that were enforcing segregation. Now, prior to him going, there was a, a letter written by eight white clergymen from Birmingham. They include Protestant pastors, Catholic priests, and a Jewish rabbi. Okay? This is very ecumenical for that time. And the open letter to Dr. King was called A Call for Unity, in which they said, Dr. King, we, we agree with what you're trying to do. We disagree with how you're doing it. And we urge you not to come to Birmingham. Okay? That's, that's the letter. Dr. King gets arrested. And he goes into the Birmingham jail. While he's in jail, his lawyer sneaks in a newspaper. Dr. King reads the call to unity, the open letter from the eight white clergymen that's in the newspaper. And in his jail cell, without any other reference sources available to him, he pens on the margins of the newspaper his response, which is known as Letter from the Birmingham Jail. Okay? So I want you to read, and what I've done is I've, I've, I've redacted, I've, I've, I've taken and annotated this for, for time's sake. And I've, I've tried to... Um, Keep the content which is relevant to the church. And I want us to listen as a church as if he were speaking to us today. Can we do that? So this is what he says. Dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling, uh, for my, uh, uh, calling my activities unwise and untimely. He says, I want to try to answer your statement and hope um, that I will be patient and reasonable in my terms. He says, I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. Dr. King came from Atlanta. I'm in Birmingham because injustice here is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and be, not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Now listen to what he says. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Now he's going to respond to those who are saying, you know what, you just need to wait Civil rights will eventually, in time, be afforded to the Negro. That's the term he uses. Here's his response in the letter to that. 
For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost meant never. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. Perhaps it is easy for those of you who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, kick and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to a public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and your mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect, when you are forever fighting the degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. And then he goes on to address issues of law, just and unjust. He says, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas of Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Now he gets into the biblical justification. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that a higher moral law was at stake. That comes from Daniel 3, 16 through 18. You might want to put that up there, Tobin. You can read that. It was practiced by early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. 
In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. He says, we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was, quote, legal. And everything that those who resisted him did was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. Acts 5.29, put that up. Peter and the apostles responding to the religious authorities telling them to stop preaching the gospel said we must obey God rather than any human authority. Then he goes on to say, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He says, I initially was disappointed at being categorized as an extremist. As I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. And what follows is where we got our sermon title today. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? He said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And persecute you. It's Mark 12, 29 through 31. Was not Amos the prophet an extremist for justice when he said, Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream? Amos 5, 24. And was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel when he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ? Galatians 16, 7. Was not Martin Luther an extremist when he said, Here I stand, I can do nothing otherwise, so help me God. And Abraham Lincoln when he said, This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson when he told these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality. The other, Jesus was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. He says, In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I'm a rather unique position of being the son, grandson, and great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, 
But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the, uh, when the early church rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. You might remember Acts 17.6 where they bring Christians before the magistrate and say, these people are turning the world upside down. (laughs) But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, The power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even vocal sanction of things that are unjust. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Finally, he goes on to say these words. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing desires. I have tried to make it clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or even perhaps even more, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. As T.S. Eliot has said, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. He concludes, Never before have I written such a long letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth, 
and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Let us all hope that the dark days of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our drenched, fear-drenched communities. And in not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours in the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Those words are as impactful and meaningful today, I believe, as they were over half a century ago. The question for us at Community Covenant Church is do we have ears to hear? And are we committed, truly committed, to our mission of bringing Christ's hope, his healing, and his wholeness to our community and our world? Are we going to pursue Christ and his priorities? And are we going to do so informed by a biblical worldview of justice? I'd like to close with a prayer um, I'll find it here uh, I got some meetings over here uh, it was a prayer from uh here it is. From a Franciscan Benedictine monk. And this is published in Advent Liturgies for Justice by the Evangelical Covenant Church. Let me read this to you and close my sermon. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live from deep from within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of God's creations so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, and hunger so that you may reach out your hands and comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to think that you can actually make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done, to bring justice and kindness to all our children and all our neighbors. Amen. And amen.